Welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. Hey, guys. Hi, Peter. Hi, Bruce. A number of years ago, um, David Deutsch wrote an article called Creative Blocks, or kind of the title in the URL is How Close Are We to Creating Artificial Intelligence? And uh, he's written a number of articles like this. There's another really good one that was inside of, what was the name of that book you sent me, uh, Peter? The book I sent you. Yeah, you sent the uh, link. <laughs> we can cut this out. What, what, what Possible Minds. Yes. Oh. And, so he also wrote an article in Possible Minds. We'll, oh. we'll be covering that one today. Yeah. But uh, um, we wanted to kind of revisit that article. Now, I have to say, those two articles are really important to me. They were a lot of the turning point in me wanting to study artificial general intelligence. I actually went back to school to study study artificial intelligence, which may seem like a weird choice if uh, you read this article, since he kind of points out that AGI and AI aren't the same thing. Um, But it it led to a, a number of changes to my career path, much as I could, um, at this point in my life. And uh, so these are kind of important articles to me because I found them quite inspiring. Having now studied this subject for a number of years, I I actually have some criticisms of the articles also that I I feel like um, are things where uh, maybe certain parts of the article, he's not quite right on a few things. So I actually think it'd be a really interesting idea, and this was Peter's idea, to go back and to revisit these articles and to kind of talk about them, talk about why it inspired me to go back to school to study artificial intelligence, especially since it kind of attacked artificial intelligence. And, um, you know, well, how do I see it now based on having studied this more deeply? So I I felt like that was an interesting subject idea. So that's what we're going to do today. So this article, Creative Blocks, um, David Deutsch in his books, he kind of developed a number of theories that are interconnected based on what we call the four strands. So the four strands would be um, uh, many worlds, quantum physics, um, computational theory, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, really neo-Darwinian theory of evolution, um, and modern synthesis, obviously not necessarily the original version of Darwin, which is long since we've advanced beyond. beyond. Um, and then Karl Popper's theory of knowledge or philosophy of science, which is creative, uh, sorry, critical rationalism. So he developed a number of interesting ideas that kind of came out of those. On this podcast, that inspired a lot of uh, this podcast. Tons of subjects come from me researching various things that Deutsch said. And a lot of cases, particularly on the four strands, I like completely agree with him. I I was surprised, for instance, when I spent a number of years trying to study quantum physics and came to the realization, oh, he's actually right that we only have one explanation of quantum physics today, and it's um, many worlds. Now, does that mean many worlds is true? That's not the way critical rationalism works, right? It's it just means that that's the only explanation we've been able to think up so far. So right now it's currently our best explanation. But I was surprised at that because it's well known there's supposed to be these other competing interpretations of quantum physics. So when I actually dug into them and found out that they did not pass even the most basic uh, criteria for being considered good explanations under critical rationalism, I was like shocked. 
And the only one that actually passed was um, Many Worlds Quantum Physics. And I was really surprised uh, when that happened. And it really actually bothered me because I don't particularly like Many Worlds Quantum Physics. <laughs> um, but the deeper I got into it, the more I could see that the four strands, uh, those four theories, really are some really of our most powerful theories and that when they're combined together, they become even more powerful explanations. So I ended up being completely in Deutsch's camp for the four strands. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, I've criticized a whole bunch of ideas that have come from David Deutsch. So trying to figure out what are the implications of the four strands is not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> and just because you accept all four of the strands as being basic and our most important scientific and philosophical theories doesn't mean that we're all going to agree on what those implications are. And that's where a lot of the room for criticism can come in, where we need to, we always have errors and mistakes in our theories. And we have, even when we accept them, we have errors in our understandings of them or errors in how we apply them. And so there, there is still quite a bit of room for uh, disagreement uh, with each other over the implications of theories. Now, and, and the, we use criticism to then try to work through where we have misunderstandings and try to get to a better understanding and try to get to an improved theory. Now, one of the things that David Deutsch really mentions in the Creative Blocks article, and one the probably the thing that I still most strongly agree with him on, like really totally agree with him on, is the nature of computational universality. Now, I've done numerous episodes on that. I think when he talks about this, he says, let me just quote from the article, despite this long record of failure, AGI must be possible. And it's because of a deep property of the laws of physics, namely the universality of computation. This entails that everything that the laws of physics require a physical object to do in principle can be emulated in arbitrary fine detail by some program on a general purpose computer, provided it is given enough time and memory. The first people to guess this and to grapple with its ramifications were the 19th century Charles Babbage and his assistant Ada, Countess of Lovelace. It remained a guess until the 1980s when I, meaning David Deutsch, proved it using the quantum theory of computation. That paragraph's really powerful. And he, it's saying so much. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, looking into this, he's completely spot on, right? I mean, like this one, I cannot find any good criticisms of it. Um, so now I, I don't want to repeat everything that we've talked about in past episodes, but let me see if I can try to give a feel to why this one is so dang hard to criticize if you actually understand it. Um. And it really, it, it, when you look at people who have tried to criticize the concept of universality, we have a mutual friend who has attempted to do that numerous times on Facebook, for example, listing one scientist after another that has criticized this. And you can very quickly see that the scientists being listed don't really understand the concept of computational universality. They're criticizing all sorts of things, but it's not, it's kind of incoherent the way they're going about it. It really comes down to something fairly simple. Um, it's the fact that we use physics to build computers. <laughs> I mean, of course we do, right? I mean, like, does anybody really seriously doubt that? 
Isn't it more accurate to say the computers we built we build are constrained by the by our current understanding of the laws of physics or our ability to manipulate those? Okay, laws? so so that's where we're going with this, right? Is let's say you built a computer, and and there are there are computers that exist. Let's say a um, a, a finite state machine that um, it follows the laws of physics, but the laws of physics can do things that a finite state machine can't do. Okay, so it, it's no big surprise that we can build a machine that can do things that a finite state machine can't do um, because the finite state machine doesn't have, have a full repertoire of what the laws of physics allows. Sorry, could you could you define finite state machine? So a finite state machine, this is probably not actually worth defining okay. <laughs> in this episode. Okay. A finite state machine is a very basic machine that has various states and a, a transition that exists between them. And if you go back and you look at the uh, the episodes of this podcast on um, on the theory of computation, I actually do go over it in detail. Okay. So it's, it's really easy to understand. They're very basic sorts of computers. They have no memory, basically, okay. right? So you basically just move between states. And there are certain kinds of algorithms that you can run on them. In fact, um, regular expressions are equivalent to a finite state machine, if I remember correctly. I'm, maybe I'm getting that one wrong. Um, but, uh, oh, they may be equivalent to a push-down automata, actually, now I think about it. Um, but like there's different, there's actual programming languages that are equivalent to some of these different types of machines that are non-universal. Okay. Mm -hmm. And even when I say non-universal, even that's misleading. They're universal within their own sphere, right? It's just, they're not universal equivalent to the laws of physics. Okay. Laws of physics allow you to do things that these machines can't do. Okay. They can run the laws of physics. You can use them to implement a machine that will do and accomplish certain types of things, do sorts of certain types of computations that these more limited types of computers are incapable of doing, okay? Now, Alan Turing had this idea, and the idea was that there was a universal computer, that there was a computer that didn't just have its own sphere of universality, but that it was equivalent to the laws of physics, okay? Um, and this was the Turing machine that we've talked a whole bunch about on this podcast. So he, and now, why did he come up with this idea? Well, it, it was, it was actually a conjecture. He didn't know if it was true or not, but it was based on a really interesting thing that happened. It was the fact that there's this grammar created by church. So we call it the church Turing thesis. So Turing and church are two different people. And it turned out that, that Turing was able to prove that his Turing machine and the church grammar were, which is like, think of it as like a totally different type of computer, were exactly equivalent. He showed through showing that you could always take one and turn it into the other and then back to the other, which is how they do this in computational theory. Um, he showed that they were exactly equivalent. Now, we have spent just decades and decades trying to come up with machines that can exceed the Turing machine in terms of computational power. Okay. Now, when I say computational power, I don't mean speed. Of course, the Turing machine wouldn't be particularly fast. And I don't even mean in memory because the theoretical Turing machine has infinite memory. Okay. Whereas a real life computer never has infinite memory. But just in terms of the class of algorithms that it can run, and also if those algorithms are tractable 
or not. Okay, if you can show that this algorithm is not tractable on a Turing machine, there will be no physical machine you can build that is tractable on. Now, it turned out that that isn't actually quite true because of the quantum computer. But it, it, but it turned out to be really close to true. This is this is how Turing was looking at it. Turing was trying to ex- solve a specific problem. The problem was how in the world? I mean, like you got these two entirely different machines: this grammar by Church and this machine that's uh, by Turing. Both are just theoretical. It's not like these are actually being built, and you can't build a grammar. But why are they exactly equivalent? How? What are the odds that these two machines would be exactly equivalent? Um, and then you try to build other machines. You come up with a Turing machine that has a 2D surface or a 3D memory, uh, you know, things that you would think would add power to the machine. And you can almost immediately show that they're exactly equivalent to a Turing machine using the same trick that Turing used. What I'm getting is that universal computation, a, a Turing machine, anything that you could reasonably expect a Turing a computer to do that the that, that's universal it can do yes is that, is that a fair way to put it yes um to, to really dumb it down yes uh question two the uh doesn't the article say that the quantum computation proved universality <laughs> so, let me, almost... so, so let me okay. get to that let me get to okay that. okay so when we're dealing with computational theory there's several di- there's two different things we care about Okay, well, there's probably lots of things we care about, but there's two in particular for our purposes for this podcast that we care about. One is, is it computable or not? Okay, so there are certain types of problems, the, famously the halting problem, that yeah. a computer cannot solve. Okay, it is in, completely impossible for a computer to solve the halting problem in a general way. It can't, it, it, it can't tell you when it will stop the program right? they can't tell you is if that... the program is going to stop or not oh is going to stop or yes not. okay 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 now there are all sorts of things that are exactly equivalent to the halting problem so there's there's different types of problems that we can pose that we can then map to the halting problem and then we know that problem is incomputable okay does that make sense yes um and there's there's tons of interesting questions that we would problems we would love to solve that computers cannot solve okay now um the other thing is tractability so now tractability is a little weird so let's say that i have something like the traveling salesman problem okay i could ask the question is the problem the traveling salesman problem is it tractable and generally speaking we would say no but we don't really know that for sure okay what if someday somebody discovers an algorithm that is um, polynomial time, so tractable, that solves the um, traveling salesman program. Well, how can you ever know for sure someone won't in the future discover such a program, right? You, you would They've tried to come up with proofs. Is there some way to prove that this is an intractable problem? There's just, they've never come up with anything. There's no way to prove it, okay? That we currently know of, but there probably is no way of to prove it. Um, So it would be technically incorrect to say the traveling salesman problem is intractable, although people say stuff like that all the time and we know what they mean, okay? Mm -hmm. What we mean is we don't know of any current algorithm that makes this a tractable problem, and we have good reason to believe we will never discover such an algorithm. 
Now, why do we have good reason to believe we will never discover such an algorithm? Well, there's this they, they discovered as part of computational theory what came out of accepting the Church Turing thesis and trying to study it and work out its implications. They had this idea of um, NP completeness. Now, I described this in a past podcast, so I don't want to get into it because it's kind of complicated. But basically, they were able to show that there are certain kinds of problems that are universal. A traveling salesman is one of them. So if I were to come up with an algorithm that could tractably solve the traveling salesman program uh, problem, then I could, in fact, take every single NP problem that exists currently and I could solve all of them tractably because it turns out the traveling salesman program is a universal problem. It, it's easy to come up with a way to take the traveling sales, take every NP problem that exists and map it to the tra traveling salesman problem. So what I, all I would need to do is if I had a way to solve the traveling salesman problem in polynomial time, which would be tra is tractable time, let's say, um, I would just simply have a program, ones that we already know exist, that takes every single NP problem, maps it into a traveling salesman pr problem. I would then solve it using the tractable algorithm, and then I would map it back. Sorry, are you saying NP? NP, problem? the letter like, N, the letter P. Okay. okay. Okay, that's what they're called. Okay. okay. There's this giant class of decision problems. Okay. That um, are all considered, well, underneath NP is the class P, which is the tractable algorithms. But... Um, you don't always know if a problem falls into, you, you know it's NP, but you don't know if it's P or not. So one of the questions they have open is, is P and NP possibly equivalent? Well, they don't believe it is because of NP completeness. They, if, if you could actually do this, then it would turn out that P and NP are the same. So we basically have a set of conjectures. And, and like all scientific conjectures, you're looking for counterexamples. And if you can't find counterexamples, then the conjecture continues to be treated as if it's true. And these conjectures are, number one, that the Turing machine is a universal computer. I would have to say it's actually today the quantum Turing machine. But a lot of times when we say Turing machine, we actually mean the quantum Turing machine. Let me explain the difference here in a second. Okay. Um, and number two, that um, NP and P aren't equivalent. So that there is basically that means there's a class of tractable algorithms and there's a class of of intractable algorithms, okay? Um, ones that we could compute, but it takes so long, it, very quickly as, it get, as the number of entities that need to be computed grows, it takes so long that just realistically, there's no way to actually solve this problem in real time, okay? Now, tons of interesting things come out of this. The whole field of AI, and this is, I've talked about this in a past podcast, is basically trying to figure out what do we do when we have an intractable problem and we still need to get a good answer? And there's tons of answers to that. You can relax the constraints a little bit. You can make it so that um, it simply finds a good answer that's close to optimal, but not actually optimal. So let's take the, the traveling salesman problem, which is this problem where you have a salesman and he needs to visit a group of cities and we want to output um, the shortest path between all the cities that then returns him round trip back to his own city. So he's got the shortest path. It's very That's hard to understand for, from someone who's not a, a computer person immersed in that world, why that would not be a, a, a solvable problem. Yes. 
I well, mean, it is a solvable problem. It's computable. Okay. But it, as the number of cities you have to do, you have to run between grows. Yeah. You have it becomes exponential how many yeah. um, options you have to try out. Uh, oh, so, so I, I guess it's it's a bit like the idea that there's more chess moves than there are atoms in the known universe. Yes, it's thing. exactly you the same thing. You can't, you know, your mind just can't get a, get, get get around exponential growth. So, so in fact, let's use chess as an example. Okay. okay. So the reason why, like, why, why did it take so long for chess programs to outplay chess masters? Like that only happened within our lifetime, right? Yes. Why was that so hard? Well, it's because chess is an intractable problem. So we know how to solve the problem of chess in principle, but you can't actually. So I, I could very simply write a program that simply tries out every possible move in chess, given a, a certain input for a board. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so in theory, I can write a program that beats every chess master, yeah. but it was just intractable. Yeah. Okay. So what they actually had to do is they had to come up with these really clever ways. And one of the main things they did is they started using machine learning AlphaGo, if you look at our AlphaGo episode, uh, to be able to evaluate the board more like how a human does it, where they can intuitively look at the board and say, oh, this board better than that board. And then once they were able to do that, they didn't have to solve the problem of chess. They just had to look a couple moves ahead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and with a good enough program, you can beat any human master. Yeah. And even human masters try to look ahead. They they very they use constraints and they don't look ahead every possible move, but they look ahead quite a number of different moves. Well, we would train the computer to only look ahead the most promising possible moves, just like a chess master would. And then it can look ahead, you know, 17 moves or something once it's trying to only do a few move uh, a few options. And then no chess master can do that. So the mm -hmm. chess masters can't compete anymore and the computer can win. Okay. So we eventually figured out how to beat chess masters. We figured out how to beat um, go masters. Go was even harder because there's no good way to evaluate the board, unlike chess. Hmm. And um, the exponential growth of possible moves is much, much larger with go. So there's a lot of problems. In fact, one might even say that the vast majority of problems that we're interested in are intractable for a computer. Um, so AI then becomes the study of, you know, how do I do that? So let's say I don't care about finding exactly the shortest path for the traveling salesman problem. I just want something close to the shortest path. Turns out that's completely tractable. Okay. And so they're, they're going to be studying how do we come up with algorithms that get us something close to the best possible answer. Okay. So in AI, they define rationality, contra the critical rationals view of rationality. They define it more like an economic concept of, of rationality. Rationality would be making the action that is provably close to the best action. And AI is all about trying to solve those kinds of problems. Okay. So getting back to how this all relates to computational universality then. Now, it turns out that you can build a computer that can take certain kinds of intractable problems, specifically the, the problem of Shor's algorithm of trying to solve um, prime numbers, what prime numbers make up a certain number, which is used in cryptography, okay? You can build a physical machine that is able to do that in, in a tractable amount of time 
Whereas a Turing machine can't do that in a tractable amount of time. Okay. At least not with any known algorithm that we have today. So what was this computer? That's the quantum computer. Now, this is exactly what made David Deutsch famous, is that he pointed out, um, he wrote this famous paper um, where he basically invented, um, he invented uh, compu quantum computational theory. What he basically did is he showed that you could take all the different things you can do on a Turing machine and you can do them all on a quantum computer. He it, it, Very simple thing, like amazingly simple. <laughs> I mean, he's world famous for this thing that nobody thought of before him, but in retrospect, it seems totally completely obvious. <laughs> and this is the way a lot of discoveries are, right? Where once somebody actually comes up with them, they're completely obvious after that. <laughs> and he basically showed that you could take anything you could do on a Turing machine, you can do on a quantum computer. But the quantum computer, because it has this massive parallelization that takes place, um, because that's what quantum computers do, it's able to, we're able to run something called Shor's algorithm that you could run on a regular computer, basically by emulating a quantum computer, because a, a regular Turing machine can emulate a quantum computer, but it would be intractable on the Turing machine, but it's tractable on the quantum computer. By doing this, David Deutsch proved that, here's the key thing, that the Church-Turing thesis was false. I'm gonna say that again. David Deutsch in his paper proved that the Church-Turing church -Turing thesis was false. Now you might say, wait, didn't he prove it was true? This is where linguistics becomes a bit of a problem. What he really did is he showed that there was a type of computer, the, quant the quant quantum Turing machine, that was able to, it, it's got the same computational, it still, no, there's nothing that the, how do I say this? There's nothing that the quantum Turing machine can compute that the Turing machine can't compute. So they're equivalent in terms of computability. But there are certain classes of algorithms Really, Shor's algorithms the really the only known example today. But there are certain there's certain algorithms such as Shor's algorithm that is tractable on the quantum computer, but intractable on a Turing machine, which makes it a different type of computer, if only a bit different. Okay. Now, because of that, the quantum computer has a number of, of speed up algorithms that can, in general, speed up any algorithm. But it doesn't take an exponential algorithm and turn it into a tractable algorithm. It doesn't do that. It's usually only a quadratic speed up, which you don't even know what that means. But basically, it's a significant speed up that is still shy of an exponential speed up. And so an algorithm other than Shor's algorithm that is exponential on a Turing machine is still exponential on a quantum Turing machine. It's just the quantum Turing machine can do it in quite a number of fewer steps, but it's still an exponential algorithm. So it didn't actually change very much in terms of uh, computational class of algorithms, but it changed it enough. And it changed it in this one important area, Shor's algorithm, cryptography, that gets all sorts of you know, government agencies excited, <laughs> which is why there's so much interest in trying to build a quantum computer. Okay, and you're probably familiar with the concept of quantum supremacy and um, all that that's been in the news with IBM competing with Microsoft and Google mm -hmm. or whatever on trying to yeah. have the best quantum computer. We're still a long ways off, 
probably in terms of having a true quantum computer that could really start um, breaking our encryption algorithms. But someday we'll work it out. We'll engineer it. It's just an engineering problem at this point because uh, mm -hmm. you know we, we've got the theories on how to do it, um, and we have no you know quantum me mechanics has got to be the single best theory that we've ever had. Right. I mean, it's the most well tested. There's not a single known counterexample to it. It's known to be wrong, by the way. This is something that I've debated with people on Facebook quite a bit. Um, they'll point out that it's wrong in some way. I'll go, look, we all know it's wrong. Like it's at yeah. odds and in contradiction to general relativity, and it can't explain um, quantum gravity. Is That's why we're looking for a theory of quantum gravity. It doesn't matter that it's wrong. Okay. It doesn't matter. It's still the best theory. It's still the only theory. There are no competitors to it. String theory is not a true competitor to it today, right? I mean, it's it's the level of verisimilitude of that theory is amazingly high. Um, even though, yeah, was there a reason why you say is there a dis distinction between being wrong and incomplete? Uh, no, it's, it's wrong. It's just it, it's <laughs> yeah. wrong is the is the right word. Okay, you no, know, okay. so. There is a distinction to be made between wrong and incomplete. Yeah. Okay. And so you might try to throw it into the incomplete category by saying we can't explain gravity today with it. Yeah. But like it's literally in contradiction to general relativity. Okay. So, you know, I guess we can't say for sure it's wrong until we actually have the new theory. And maybe we will discover, I mean, like one could make an argument that when we have the new theory, it'll turn out to be it's quantum theory plus something else. But like, nobody believes that, right? I mean, like, it's it's not even a very viable point of view. I don't think you, you could find a single scientist who ascribes to that viewpoint. It's generally accepted that it's wrong. Okay. <laughs> and this is one of the things that Deutsch will point out is, yeah, it, we, we know it's wrong. It, it's it's an incorrect theory. We're actually in a unique point in history where we, we used to think our theories were true. And we, we sort of don't believe that anymore. We, we think they're the truest. Okay, this mm -hmm. fits very well with, with critical rationalism. Okay, it's mm -hmm. one of those ideas that has grown over time in science that it doesn't really matter if our theories are entirely right or not. What matters is, is that we don't have a, a good alternative theory. Okay. Um, so what David Deutsch did is not only did he create this new type of computer, the quantum computer, the quantum Turing machine, um, which then became the new universal machine, because now that's the machine that we know how, in theory, how to build, even though in practice we can't build one, um, that we know in theory how to build. And it is not known how you could use the laws of physics to exceed that machine. Now, maybe you can. Maybe the laws of physics allow for um, some new type of machine. So what David Deutsch, he didn't want to leave that open door like that, like um, Turing did. So what he did is he created a mapping between quantum physics and the quantum Turing machine to show that they were equivalent. Now, this was really the genius of what David Deutsch did, because now he's actually produced a proof that universal, that um, computational universality is true. But, and here's the key thing, only insofar as quantum physics holds, quantum mechanics holds, which, as I just said, it's wrong. It's known to be wrong. Okay. Now, this is where things kind of get interesting. So 
Deutsch proved something, but based on a, a physical theory that's known to be wrong. So doesn't that mean that his church turing deutsch thesis, as we call it today, is wrong? Well, no, that doesn't mean that. If I could use an analogy, um, let's say that um, we took, we, we wanted to show that, uh, we wanted to take the stance that, um, you know, actually uh, the, the laws of gravity are incorrect under Newton's laws, which, you know, today we accept that as true, but back under Newton's laws before Einstein's time, that would have been a real hard sell, right? Well, people will often point to that and they'll say, okay, we thought gravity was, was real. It, it, we thought it was a force. Then Einstein came along, he showed it wasn't even a force. So there is no force of gravity. And we have to get used to this idea. And even Popper would agree with this. Popper uses this as an example that um, you don't know how the new theory is going to falsify things, how that new theory is going to overturn things that you thought were true. And you may have to someday, you really believe there was a force of gravity. And then the new theory comes along, Einstein's theory of general relativity, and suddenly there's no longer a force of gravity. And this is generally the way we tell this story. And this is even the way Popper tells this story. There's a problem with that way of thinking about it, though, even though it's technically true, because there really is still a force of gravity. <laughs> even if it's now explained as curvature of space and things moving together and things like that, it's effectively exactly equivalent to a force. Okay. Um, what Einstein really did is he, he showed why the old theory was successful. Now, this is what Popper is trying to explain is that you can't, you don't just throw theories out for being wrong. You have to actually have a new theory that explains the success of the past theory. And until you have that, until you have that new theory that explains the success of the past theory, you don't have any particular reason to believe anything in that false theory is wrong, other than the, the, the individual things that you know to be incorrect, right? Well, there's no reason to believe that the church during Deutsch thesis is going to be overturned in the new theory. It might be. Until we have the new theory, we won't know, but it might confirm the church turing Deutsch thesis. In fact, at the moment, that would probably be your best guess, is that the future theory is going to explain the success of the past theories. Now, we don't know, okay? But we've got good reason to believe that at least in so far as physics follows quantum mechanics, that universality is going to hold until there's some new theory that tells us this is how you would build a machine. <laughs> <laughs> that that is different than the quantum Turing machine that can do something the quantum Turing machine can't do, universality is going to hold. It's un Deutsch in his original paper, according to Penrose, actually wrote about how you would get around this. So Deutsch is not naive about this, right? He's very open about this. Maybe someday we will have a theory of quantum gravity and it will allow us to say build an oracle machine that can chain that can solve the halting problem, at least on a Turing machine. You know, I don't know. Scott Aronson's, uh, Aronson's written papers about that. Maybe someday that'll happen. At that point, we will overturn the Church-Turing-Deutsch thesis, okay? And we'll be able to build a new type of computer using this our new understanding of physics, and it will have a greater computational class. That might happen, or it might not. Is that the okay. definition of an oracle? You said oracle machine? Oracle they, machine they can, is... They can a, solve the, solve the, the halting, halting problem. problem. Is that, yeah. that okay? Yeah. Okay. 
So it's in computational theory, we invent um, we invent computers that have a different class in the Turing machine. It's actually quite easy to do, right? Like there's all sorts of computers that exist theoretically hmm. that have different that are different than the Turing machine and have a different class of computation. One of them is the Oracle machine where you attach this Oracle to a Turing machine and it can solve the, the halting problem. So now you have a Turing machine plus the ability to solve the halting problem. What's your new computational class? And we've answered that question. We've, we've got tons of studies on that, right? Hmm. Um, this is the key thing though. And this is one of the brilliant insights of Deutsch. Everything I'm talking about directly links computational machines to physics. Now I just said, we have theoretical computing machines that aren't linked to physics. You just can't build them because the laws of physics don't allow you to, okay? So when we talk about a physical computing machine, which is usually what we care about in computational theory, that's what we're studying. We're actually studying what do the laws of physics allow you to compute? That is what the theory of computation actually is, okay? And this is one of the things that when I've had numerous arguments on Facebook with a certain someone out there who's argued with me over this quite a bit, okay? Yes, it might be that we overturn the Turing-Deutsch thesis. That would be great if we could, right? But nobody knows how to do that today. So there's we don't really have any reason to believe we will. We don't really have any reason to believe we won't, but but our best theory says this is what the computational class is. All of our theories are computable today. Physics theories are computable today. Well, of course they are, because if we had a physics theory that wasn't computable, then that would mean there would be some way to build a machine using physics that would then make that computable, and we would then invent a new type of computer. The types of physical computers we can build is directly linked to our understanding of physics. Now, and on so, a practical level, what would overturning the Church Turing Deutsch thesis look like? Like, how can would, I get my mind around that? Okay, so let's say that we come out with a theory of quantum gravity, and it yeah. allows us to um, create a closed time loop, where yeah. you can run a program, and then you can wait for forever in this closed time loop um, until uh, the program does or doesn't ter uh, terminate. And then it comes back with an answer. Did the program terminate? Okay. Okay. Under those laws of physics, now this is completely made up laws of physics. There is no theory of quantum gravity. So I'm making this up. We'll understand that this is a complete work of fiction. Okay. We're talking about. okay. okay. Um, so I come back and I now can build a computer that can solve the halting problem. Now, one of the things you have to understand about the halting problem is that it's completely unsolvable. <laughs> So what I really mean when I say I can solve the halting problem is I mean you solved it for the Turing machine. You then have a new halting problem for this new type of computer that mm. can't be solved. Okay. Mm. And this is what Gold's theorem actually says. Um, so you would never tr truly solve the halting problem, but you could solve it for a certain type of computer, if that makes any sense. Okay. Um, this would then be a new type of physics. We would now have an idea how to go about making this computer. We would then have to figure out the engineering problems around it, but eventually we would work through, all problems are soluble. We would eventually work through the engineering problems. We make this new type of computer that is like this, uses this closed time loop and you attach it to a Turing machine. And now the Turing machine can solve the halting problem for other Turing machines, but it can't solve it for 
this new type of computer itself. Okay. Um, there's this really deep link, and this is where the problem comes. People who are trying to show the Church Turing thesis or the Church Turing Deutsch thesis, if they even know that that thesis exists, which most of them don't, um, is wrong. What is it they're trying to say? Okay. If all they're trying to say is we might have future um, computational theory based on the new laws of physics, and it might overthrow that the Church-Turing-Deutsch thesis, then yeah, sure. But what you're going to end up with is the Church-Turing-Deutsch, you know, X thesis, whoever discovers this, and a new type of computer that has a new computational class, and everything's still computable. <laughs> and this is why you can't get around the Church-Turing thesis in general, okay, is yes, you can overthrow any specific version of the Church-Turing thesis, you can overthrow it with the Church Turing Deutsch thesis. You can overthrow the Church Turing Deutsch thesis with the Church Turing Deutsch Aronson thesis, whoever discovers the new version. But you always wind up with something that's exactly equivalent to what we thought the Church Turing thesis was, which basically says the, everything's, everything that is physics allows you to do can be simulated on a computer. It's just, it depends on what computer. The laws of physics may mean we have to invent new types of computers to fulfill that. Or they might not. It may be we've already discovered the, the top class of computer that will ever exist, the quantum computer. Okay. That may it may be every theory we have after this will can will say that that is the highest class of computer. Um and when someone wants to get around the Church Turing Deutsch thesis, they typically just don't mean the Church Turing Deutsch Aronson thesis, right? Or whatever this new future thesis is going to be. Hmm. They mean that in some mystical supernatural way, we'll simply find out that consciousness can't be in any way computed or therefore explained by physics. Well, that's just supernaturalism, right? I mean, and, and that's clearly most of the people who say this yeah. are getting into that camp <laughs> because they don't quite understand what Deutsch was actually trying to say. And so they're just kind of putting stuff out there. Well, maybe, you know, hmm. just recently had one of the critics on Facebook say, oh, but see, there's a difference between a recipe and, and a cake. Because if you try to eat a recipe, it doesn't taste like a cake. It's like, okay, you're, you're so thoroughly misunderstanding what Deutsch is saying hmm. that I don't even know how to respond to you. <laughs> and I have to go back to the beginning with you and explain what it is Deutsch was trying to say, because you're wasting your time by trying to hmm. handle criticisms like this, right? Hmm. Um, because Deutsch is not trying to say that the recipe tastes like a cake. Let me assure you that that just has nothing to do with the church during Deutsch thesis, right? What the church during Deutsch thesis really says, though, is this. If you think the biological substrate is able to do something that the, that the uh, digital computer can't do, then what you're really positing is a new branch of physics, a new laws of physics that isn't quantum computers. Um, and... I think most people like um, Lee Cronin has been very critical of the church Turing thesis. Okay. Doesn't really understand it from what I can see. He, he does. He is not trying to say that we need the laws of physics, but that is what the implications of his statements is. He just doesn't know that. Right. Cause he hasn't actually understood the theory correctly. And that's really what you're trying to say is anytime you say the, the brain is not a computer is not equivalent to a computer. You're really trying to say, we need new laws of physics to explain the brain. Well, 
I don't think most of the people who say that would ever actually agree to that statement because that's such a wildly strange statement. Okay. This is why computational universality is so hard to get around. Yeah. And, and it's, you're either positing a future laws of physics, which, you know what, that's fair. Okay. If you've got good reason, quantum mechanics is wrong. So you might even be right. Okay. But you need to actually have entirely new physics to even posit a new type of computer. <laughs> because right now, our current understanding of physics shows that the quantum computer is the universal computer, period, end of story. Because we because Deutsch mapped the two together. So they are equivalent, period, end of story. And there's no other way around that other than you're going to have to actually show me entirely new laws of physics. So when someone comes in, they start to criticize the Church-Turing thesis. I'll use the term Church-Turing thesis or the Turing principle as a shorthand, but I really mean the Church-Turing-Deutsch thesis, whatever the current highest computer is. When you're trying to criticize that, they usually, they need to show us new laws of physics and none of them even know that they need to show us, very few of them. Uh, Roger Penrose knows that he needs that. He's one of the exceptions. So, okay, so getting back to this, we didn't get very far because I did this aside for computation universal computational universality. But this is why I'm so completely in the Deutsch camp for the yeah. concept of computational universality. And yes, maybe brains use special kinds of quantum gravitational forces that we don't currently know about under our current theories. Is that, is that kind of what Penrose thinks? That is what Penrose thinks. what Penrose, okay. Okay. Now, in fact, let me read something. So a place where I do need to offer a criticism of Deutsch. So, Penrose, so Deutsch, in his, this article that we're reviewing, he talks about various other ideas, including Penrose's. He says, some, such as the mathematician Roger Penrose, have suggested the brain uses quantum computation or even hyperquantum computation, relying on as yet unknown physics beyond quantum theory. And this explains the failure to create AGI on existing computers. To explain why I and most researchers in the quantum theory of computation disagree that this is a plausible source of the human brain's unique functionality is beyond the scope of this essay. If you want to know more, um, read... Uh, the 2006 paper is the brain of quantum computer published in the journal of cognitive science. So now I can summarize this point. Okay. So first of all, let me just say, he says Penrose suggested the brain uses quantum computation. That's not true. But then he goes on and he says, what is true or even hyper quantum computation. Penrose in his books is quite clear. He does not mean that the brain is a quantum computer because Penrose knows that if the brain's a quantum computer, that's exactly the same as saying that the brain is equivalent to a computer. So Penrose is smart. He really gets this stuff. He's, he's, he's got really interesting ideas because of that. Hmm. Penrose is saying quantum mechanics is wrong and that we need to replace it with an entirely new version of physics. And then he goes through a punch list of what he hopes that physics will hold. And guess what? That's all it is. It's a list of things that Penrose hopes the future theory is going to hold. Um, he tried to come up with something to make it more plausible that the brain could be, have, be working off of quantum effects. Now, this wouldn't be to show it's a quantum computer because quantum computers are exactly equivalent to Turing machines other than a slight difference in the class of what algorithms uh, the Shor's algorithm can run. 
So in, in his book, he says that. He says, I'm not suggesting the brain's a quantum computer because that would, that would undermine my entire argument if that were true. It would be the same as saying the brain's equivalent to a computer. So he is trying to say there's going to be some interesting effect that we're going to find in future physics. And that future physics is going to uh, show that there's this quantum effect and the brain's going to use that. And that's going to allow us to get around Godel's algorithm. He makes his whole argument around Godel's algorithm. And that is his whole argument. His whole argument today is basically, um, you know, I think that we're going to have some future physics and current physics is completely wrong. And so I don't accept its current implications. And that's what Penrose is to say. Hmm. Now, he tries to make his, his point of view, which when I put it the way I just did, it doesn't seem like a very good theory. And really, it's not a theory. Like, it's not by any stretch of the imagination, a scientific theory today. How, I'm curious, how many people agree with Penrose? I mean, I've I've heard a lot of people who are interested in his idea, but I don't think I've ever like interacted with someone who is like, Penrose is right, kind of a No, thing. no, I don't think you will find really many scientists at all that agree with Penrose. Okay. Um, but, you know, what, what would they agree with, right? Penrose himself admits that this isn't a theory. This is him trying to point out problems with the existing theory and what he how he hopes you might go about trying to solve it. He's come up with interesting theories trying to solve it. His, um, I can't remember the name. He's got a theory that, he, that uh, didn't catch on at first. He was kind of disappointed. And then it started to catch on as a possible way to go about um, trying to make some advances in uh, physics. I'd have to look the theory up. So, I mean, to Penrose, to his credit, he's actually trying to solve the problem. He admits there's a problem. I kind of think he's probably on the wrong path. I think he's got intuitions that um, it should be the case that the brain isn't equivalent to a computer. And so he, he tries to show there could be quantum effects in the brain. Mm. And he got together with a, another scientist who believed that, and they published a book on the subject. Mm. But everything we know about quantum computation suggests that you just can't have quantum computations in something as wet and warm as the brain. Right? So I, I, I take it what kind of what Penrose is, he's searching for the mystery of consciousness in something more physical, whereas Deutsch, and I think it's probably a more mainstream position that it's more of a, a software that is problem. Is, is, is that fair? Yes. Okay. So this is Deutsch's whole point, is yeah. that we don't really, I mean, like Penrose's theories is not a good theory today. Now that could change. It's, it's a conjecture. And let's make a distinction between a conjecture. Penrose has every right to use his intuitions to say, I'm going to make the following conjecture and I'm going to let that lead me into a research program. Okay. And that's what Penrose is doing to his credit, right? And it's his risk. If he's wrong, then that's his time he's wasted going down a false path. Now, False paths can be partially true. So even if you're going down a false path, it may turn out to be useful in some way. Okay. And this is one of the reasons why dogmatism is sometimes good. <laughs> hmm. um, but in terms of AGI studies, if you were trying to pick between Penrose's approach to AGI studies and Deutsch's approach to AGI studies, Deutsch's is rooted in existing theory. And it's really hard to see how you'd get around it. And Penrose isn't saying how you would either because Penrose doesn't know and probably will never know because honestly, he's probably wrong. And there probably is no way to get around uh, uh, 
the Church Turing Deutsch thesis. Or if there is, it's going to turn out to be a benign version, where it's just simply a, a tweak to the thesis and the church turing deutsch Aronson thesis or whatever, right? It's I keep using Scott Aronson as the example because he wrote that paper on um, how we might someday build a better computer. Uh, but that may never happen, or it may. Either way, it almost doesn't matter. Even if it did happen, even if it turned out that we could build a new type of computer that had closed time loops and we could solve the halting problem, do we have any reason at all to believe that human brains can solve the halting problem? They can't, mm. right? Mm. The limits of what humans can do is exactly equivalent to the class of computational theory that mm. computational theory says. We can't, we can't do things, we can't intractably accomplish things that computers can only intractably do. Mm. We can't solve uncomputable problems. So is that so, get it get at a link, uh, sort of a link between computational universality and um, a universal the universal explainer hypothesis? So, yes, insofar as the universal explainer hypothesis is built on top of computational universality. Okay. So the universal explainer hypothesis would hypothesize that um, even a universal explainer can't do things that are not allowed by computational theory. Mm. Okay. Because it's still ultimately that the brain's a physical object, that it's running software. It it cannot be different from what you can do on a Turing machine or a quantum Turing machine. Really on a Turing machine, we've got no reason at all to believe that human brains can solve Schwarzschild's algorithm in exponential time. Uh, sorry, in, in, real, in uh, polynomial time. So we've got every reason at this point to believe that the brain is a regular Turing machine, not even a quantum Turing machine. Mm -hmm. So this is really kind of where we're the starting point that if you, and this is what got me excited, right? The realization that, that we have good reason to believe good theories, best theories, best in class theories with zero competitors today that say that we've got every reason to believe that um, AGI is possible, it's just a matter of finding the right software. Hmm. And it's not gonna require new physics, it's not gonna require um, some sort of mystical connection, et cetera, hmm. okay. I was just gonna say this, that might be a good transition to uh, a question I have for you. Okay. About the article. It seems to me like most of what you say, say so far, have said so far, would be relatively uncontroversial in the AGI field. Yeah. Or they might at least pretty much be beyond the, the, yes. the same page as you. But if if you turned it around and said uh, also what's in the article to someone who would be a more mainstream AGI researcher, mm -hmm. and you said, well, the reason we don't have AGI yet is because we're basing our programming and our ideas on, on what Deutsch might call bad philosophy. I don't think he uses that in the article, but he says, well, we're thinking about justified true belief and yeah. induction and Bayesianism, Bayesianism and behaviorism. And all, and I, I think he brings all that up in the article and seems to suggest that that's why just AGI is on the wrong path. Yes. I kind of think, suspect that this 
mainstream AGI researcher would like look at you like you were crazy or, okay. or am I in my misunderstanding? Well, this is actually where I do have some criticism of Deutsch. Okay. Offer. Okay. Although I think he's still basically correct. Your average AGI researcher isn't aware of any of these theories. So yes, the vast majority of AGI. So how many AGI researchers are there in the world? Well, how would you even count that? There, there's yeah. probably very, very, very few. Okay. You got a whole lot of AI researchers and probably some of them think that their AI research might someday be related to AGI research. Hmm. Um, but I don't think that there are true, uh, some large number of AGI researchers out there. That's just not the way big science works today, right? But if you were to talk to your average AI researcher, who's just, who isn't even really trying to do AGI research, okay? Um, and you were to say, can we build a, an AGI on a computer? The vast majority of them would say yes. Now, if you were to ask them why, they would not cite Deutsch's paper that shows a mapping between physics and computational theory. <laughs> well, that's, of course, the right way to go about this. You want to show brains are physical objects. Physical objects follow the laws of physics. The laws of physics are computable on a computer. And therefore, I now know I can build an AGI unless you can show that the laws of physics themselves are wrong. And, and not just wrong, because of course we know they're wrong. They have to be wrong in a way that matters to the way the brain would function. And this is the thing that one of our mutual friends out on Facebook has missed over and over and over again, okay, is she might point out, say, the problem of time or something like that. What has the problem of time even got to do with how brains function? They don't, right? Pointing out a problem isn't sufficient. You need to have a really good reason why it's got some sort of relevance to the problem of AGI. And we just don't have any reason at all to believe that. Maybe we will someday. I don't know. You leave an open mind because you're a critical rationalist. You leave an open mind. Maybe we will find out that the Church Turing Deutsch thesis has thoroughly misled, you know, someone like me uh, in AGI research. But we've just got no reason to believe that today. And we've got every reason to believe that it's the right path because it's the best theory we currently have. So the vast majority of AI people have, don't have any clue that computational theory is actually a branch of physics. They don't have any clue that David Deutsch wrote a paper that showed you can map physics to the computer and okay. back. Okay. okay. So what are they basing this on? Well, to be honest, it's gut feel, right? I mean, they, they have this kind of gut feel that if it's not the case, if you were to ask them, they might produce something similar to Deutsch. They might say something like, well, brains are physical objects. So there's nothing, there's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing supernatural about it. Yeah. So of course we should be able to build a physical system that's equivalent, right? Yeah. But they, they don't know. I mean, like you'll come across people all the time that are scientists, legitimate scientists who very sincerely think and we'll argue, I, there was a friend of mine at work who's a PhD, so she's an actual scientist, not working, doing research in the field today, And she, she, but she's in neuroscience. And I, I told her, I said, yeah, I'm interested in neuroscience and because I'm interested in AGI. She says, well, we don't know that the brain is equivalent to a computer. I said, yeah, we do. <laughs> and she goes, no, we don't. And this is, this is someone who knows what she's talking about in the field yeah. of neuroscience, right? They're not teaching in the field of neuroscience, David Deutsch's paper on 
mapping quantum physics to computational, you know, to the computer, mm. right? I go, no, no, it, it, there's an actual paper, right? And quantum physics is exactly equivalent to the quantum computer and vice versa. So we know that the brain's equivalent to a computer. And then she would immediately say, I mean, she's never heard this. She, she's not going to take it from me. I'm not a some official scientist, right? doesn't matter that I'm right. <laughs> she, she, so she goes, no, no, no. We've, we've, we always think the brain is like, you know, a steam machine or it's yeah. a clockwork or, and she uses all the standard arguments. Okay. And it's not the same because we've actually mapped physics to the computer. That's what Deutsch did. Mm. Unless you can show a mistake in his paper or you can show a new set of physics, then this is our best theory. And there, there's yeah. just no competitor to it. Okay. So from her from her perspective, she she she's kind of saying that well, you know, couple hundred years ago, the steam engine was the most advanced thing around. So people just naturally compared the human brain to the the steam engine. Right. And now the computer is the most advanced thing around. So we kind of just make this assumption that the computer is like the the brain, but it's it just in reality, it's not not really uh, uh, like that. Whereas everything you're saying about universe, universality and all this seems to suggest that it must be. This this is a very yeah. different case than those yeah. other examples. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This, this is a hugely different case than those other examples. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Now, by the way, she could still be right, right? It could be that we end up with some completely new theory at some point. Okay, but I can always say that. And this is this is the thing people miss, right? Even people who call themselves critical rationalists, they miss the fact that you can always, always say, well, maybe the theory's wrong. That's just not what you do. You have to actually suggest a new theory. <laughs> okay, this is gets me to where I do have at least a little bit of a criticism of what Deutsch says, but but I still think he's mostly right. And here's the quote. For example, it is taken for granted by almost every authority that knowledge consists of justified true beliefs and that therefore an AGI's thinking must include some process during which it justifies some of its theories as true or probable while rejecting others as false or improbable. But an AGI programmer needs to know where the theories come from in the first place. The prevailing misconception is that by assuming that the future will be like the past, it can be derived or extrapolate or generalize theories from repeated experience by an alleged process called, called induction. But that is impossible. So why is, why is this still conventional wisdom that we get our theories by induction? Okay. Um, having now studied this, he's kind of right. But if I were to actually go talk to your average scientist, much less your average AGI or sorry, AI researcher. None of them or most of them have never even heard of justified true belief. Yeah. Right. And the idea that it is taken for granted is just not true. Hmm. Now, I think what Deutsch would probably say to defend himself here is that he's saying, he would say, well, they don't know about justified true belief. They may, they may have heard of induction because that's a common enough term. Hmm. And they may have even heard that science is based on induction because that's a common enough idea but they don't have any clue what it all means right it's yeah. just there's no interest that, that's that crazy philosophical stuff i'm just going to go do my science okay and 
maybe they even consent to it. They, they heard it from a good source. Yeah, my buddy Joe, who's a scientist and knows this stuff, he told me it was based on induction. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. That's about as far as it goes. The idea that it is taken for granted is just not true. <laughs> um, I think Deutsch would say, but they act like it's true. Well, yeah. this is maybe getting a little closer. Okay. If you were to go ask the average scientist, are scientific th- are there scientific theories that have been proven fact? Some scientists would say yes, but I think there's a very large number of scientists who would say, no, nothing's proven. So I have to take some exception to Deutsch here. The idea that this is some overwhelming prevailing philosophy that has misdirected science, much less AI, is not really entirely true. Hmm. Now, having said that, the entire field of machine learning is pretty much entirely based on the philosophy of induction. And machine learning is definitely where all the action's happening in AI research right now. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I I want to emphasize that for the most part, AI researchers aren't trying to build AGIs and have no interest in doing so. Yeah. So the idea that it is misleading that field is not true either, right? Because the Mm -hmm. field for the most part is not even attempting to build AGI. They're just trying to take existing theories, which they may consider to be inductive, and in fact, might be inductive. Let, let me go that far, okay? Depending on what you mean by induction. Um, and they're trying to take them as far as they can. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a completely, thoroughly legitimate thing for them to be doing, okay? So what I'm kind of getting is that the article, or at least how I'm interpreting Deutsch's article, he seems to suggest that the, the these bad ideas about knowledge are holding up AI research, where kind of what you, you're saying is that that might be true to some degree, but really what AI researchers are doing is just something completely different yeah. than, than trying to create. That's AI. right. They're not even trying. Right. Now, what about the cases where they are trying, like open AI? Well, yeah, they're trying to go down the path of of using existing neural network theories, which are, quote, inductive. And they're trying to do a lot of these things that are mistakes, just exactly like Deutsch is saying. So this is why Deutsch isn't entirely wrong. And this is something you have to get used to, is that a lot of these statements, we, we, we say things, we explain things. And you just have to get comfortable with the fact that human explanations are just full of true and falseness all over the place. (laughs) And a lot of times it's just because we're trying to briefly explain something we have in our mind and there's just no way to give the full details. And I'm going to give Deutsch a pass based on that, right? I do want to clarify that the idea that there is this overwhelming, you know, people take it for granted and this totally is leading the world of AI in the wrong direction. None of that's true. And yet he's still kind of getting at something that's really at heart true, Hmm. which is that we understand so little about how to go about doing AGI research that we basically were, were, for all intents and purposes, we're the guy who's looking for the keys underneath the lamppost, even though he didn't lose it Hmm. there Hmm. because that's where all the light is. So he might as well. And you know what? That's not even a bad thing to try, right? If if you've lost your key, even if it wasn't in the light, it may have bounced into the light and that's the easiest place to search first. You may want to actually go into the light and look there first. Yeah. It's, it's not as stupid as it sounds, right? Yeah. Um, and I yet, when it, go ahead. 
Well, I, I assume you've read uh, Nick Bostrom's book, Super Intelligence. I, I haven't. Or, oh, you haven't. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Well, kind of what I get from that book is that that I, you know, he goes through all these different different ways. I can't really describe them off the top of my head, but that uh, an AI might essentially turn into a kind of AGI just just ha- we might happen to to yes. stumble across yes. something that might might do that it's probably a pretty common I- idea it is uh whereas kind of what i get from deutsch and his is that that w- that's not likely to happen we'd have to really understand something about human consciousness and how we create knowledge so, and, you know, his idea is if you understand something that you can program it. So we kind of have to understand how knowledge is created first before we could hope to program it. Is is that a fair? Yes. Fair now again, let me yeah. both agree with Deutsch and criticize what he's saying. Okay. Okay. So if you were to ever read Ray Kurzweil, have you read Ray Kurzweil? Never heard of him. No. no. Oh, I'm surprised you haven't heard of him. Okay. <laughs> well, like even Deutsch mentions him all yeah. the time. Okay. Right. I mean, like. Yeah. He's kind of a big famous name. Okay. So he's he talks a lot about the singularity. He's kind of a singularity geek. Okay. And um he's run a number of companies. So he's definitely a smart guy who knows a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. And I would consider him a perfectly valid scientist, but he's really kind of mostly known as a transhumanist booster, you know. Okay. And he and like most people who do these sorts of things, he gets so much wrong, right? Okay. <laughs> And he's definitely been in the camp of, oh, AI is making all this progress towards AGI. And he he's he's boosted this idea in his books that there's a dwindling field of things that every time we discover, you know, first we say it would require real intelligence to, to play chess better than a master. And then once we actually have an, a, a, an AI that can do, can be the master, then that's no longer considered AI and and Deutsch criticizes that view, and he's definitely boosted that view. Okay. Right. You just mentioned Bostrom, right? Yeah. Where the idea of, well, someday we'll have complexity and it'll just sort of happen. There was a whole book written by a guy who believed that, not a scientist, a, a writer. Um, the guy who wrote Flash Forward, I forget his name now, but famous science fiction author. He has a whole series of books where the internet accidentally becomes conscious yeah. because consciousness is, is a something that just naturally arises out of complexity. Uh-huh. Right. So uh-huh. there's and definitely it- a, a lot of kind of pseudo philosophical ideas that are out there that are definitely in the mouths of these very small set of boosters like Nick, Nick Bostrom and Ray Kurzweil. And they say stuff like this. Yeah. Although let me be honest, the real reason they say stuff like this is because they don't have a clue what to say. Right. Mm. We're, we're in this dark area where nobody knows. Right. So you might as well say crazy things like, Maybe it's just a matter of it happening on its own, you know. Is that is this kind of related to the scaling hypothesis? Yeah, like, the scaling hypothesis is very similar yeah. to, to that, right? The yeah. scaling hypothesis comes from this group of people who don't know what they're saying, and so they're saying kind of crazy things. Yeah. Um, just if, as I understand, just if we something achieves a certain level of complexity, that that consciousness or agi or whatever will just kind of just happen yeah yeah right okay what deutsch is saying and i'm completely agree with him is no we've got better theories than that right if if you were at least aware of critical rationalism as a theory 
then you'd have a better idea of how knowledge is actually created. And that's true. And then you wouldn't say such crazy things as the scaling hypothesis is going to explain it, or it will just arise from complexity. Not because, I mean, who knows? Maybe those are true, right? Maybe, who knows? Since we don't have a theory, it could be true. But the reason why they're saying it is because they just don't even have a clue what else to say. And we've got better things to say. We could talk about universal um, universal explainers. We could talk about the importance of explanations. Okay. There's so many things we could be talking about that would be better and would probably be very helpful in trying to narrow down the search for what the right algorithm is. Having said that, and having hung out with a lot of the fans of David Deutsch who are interested in AGI and would really like to find it, it's really obvious that knowing critical rationalism just does not seem to help that much. And in fact, one of the things that I've criticized Deutsch on, on this podcast, extensively on this podcast, is that Deutsch, based on this belief that critical rationalism was the key to understanding AGI, has, and that it's based on explanations, he has defined creativity in terms of the ability to create explanations, which is one of the things he says in this article. And he has um, claimed that there are only two kinds of knowledge creation. Uh, that of biological evolution and that of human minds. And these are these are false ideas, or they're true if you maybe define these terms in really narrow ways, but that doesn't seem to be what he was intending, right? And when you read his books, you come along, along to various philosophical ideas that are themselves probably every bit as misleading as the inductive ideas that he's trying to put down. And really, the correct set of ideas is that knowledge creation is ubiquitous. This is the, um, the Popper-Campbell camp, right? That um, we do trial and error all over the place. We do um, all sorts of things that create things that are legitimately called knowledge. And they're not just two sources. And creativity, yes, we can define creativity as the ability to create new explanations, and that's what Deutsch does. But then, for example, you've eliminated biological evolution as a source of creativity. Well, even Deutsch doesn't want to do that. So he'll openly admit, well, there's more than one definition for creativity, mm. right? Mm. Okay, but you know what? The moment you define creativity in your book as it's the ability to create explanations, every Deutschian fan I know really honestly thinks that there is there is no other possible definition of creativity, even though Deutsch does not say that. And Deutsch has personally told me he does not believe that, right? And had a yeah. podcast episode where I talked about my, had a chance to talk with him and what he told me. I so the problem that. is, is that when you, when you try to go about defining these things, Deutsch has come up with ways of looking at it that aren't necessarily the most helpful either, okay? And they're just as misleading. And trying to tease through all these things and come up with, okay, what's the real truth? Okay, well, I can tell you a few things that I know at this point. I don't know much, right? This is a hard problem to solve. But I can tell you that AI is overwhelmingly built out of um, trial and error programs. And that that's why most of them work in a tractable amount of time is because they do exactly what Popper's theory says. Now, that's not what Deutsch is trying to say in this article. And in fact, it's at odds with what Deutsch is trying to say in this article. 
But AI is actually deep-rooted in Popper's theory. Nobody knows that. Certainly nobody in AI knows that, and nobody in critical rationalism knows that. <laughs> okay, but that is the truth, because overwhelmingly, every algorithm has to do a conjecture and reputation process to be able to work in the first place, because that's just how knowledge is created. And AI algorithms work by doing that. That should be zero surprise, but it surprises everybody in both camps, the Deutsch camp, the critical rationalist camp, and the AI camp. And it's hard for us to get past some of these even super simple ideas. Now, if I know that, if AI is actually based on conjecture and refutation, exactly like Popper said, then why can't they build AGI? Well, as it turns out, knowing Popper's epistemology is insufficient to understand AGI. What you really need to understand, my guess, okay, obviously I'm guessing, hmm. is you have to understand how to create a universal conjecture engine. The types of conjecture engines we build today in AI, they're narrow. They're, they're always within certain, I'm going to try to solve chess. I'm going to try to come up with a conjecture for what the next best move would be. So I'm going to try every possible move. And I'm going to look forward this many number of spaces, and I'm going to use a board evaluation algorithm that was built using machine learning or alpha zero or something, you know, and, and I've got this way I'm going about doing it. And yes, it's a conjecture refutation process, but it's not in any way capable of coming up with a conjecture for, or I want to do something else entirely, you know, huh. it's super narrow what the search space is. Well, that's what you need to do. To make AI work, you have to keep the search space narrow. So how is it that humans go about doing this? Well, we're, we're not doing anything magic, right? As per universality, we can't violate the limitations of computational universality. So we have this miraculous ability to come up with a search path that's narrow, where we come with an explanation and it narrows and it creates these constraints, and then we're able to figure things out based on that. Or we might be wrong and we might just waste all our time. <laughs> I love that and, universal conjecture engine. That could be your, your you thought of that? Is it, that's your, yeah, your, it's a your term language? I made up right now. I, I don't know, think I've ever. <laughs> we, I think we might've made history on this podcast. Let's, let's, let's. Uh... Okay. This, once you realize that all, all AI algorithms, almost almost all AI algorithms. I actually have counterexamples. I discovered a number of counterexamples that proved that the Campbell Popper camp was wrong, that all knowledge is created by conjecture refutation. Strange as this may sound, I actually can show that there are algorithms that are do exactly the same as these conjecture refutation algorithms, but don't use conjecture refutation. And that's something that still needs to be explained. And I've got some ideas now on how to explain it. I didn't have any idea a few years ago when I discovered it, but I've got some good ideas now about how to go about that. But the vast majority of them use conjecture refutation processes, okay? Um, no surprise there, really at all, if you really stop and think about it. The issue is the search space. When, when evolution or humans, the two open-ended sources of knowledge creation. And this is what Deutsch got wrong. He wanted to say they were the only sources of knowledge creation. What they are is they're the only open-ended sources of knowledge creation. There's a difference. There's a really important difference between those two. Hmm. It's got to do with the search space. So search algorithms are 
variation selection algorithms. So if I'm doing a search and I'm trying out different, I'm trying to search for something, I'm trying multiple different things. Well, that's obviously variation and selection. If I'm doing variation and selection, then I'm searching. So the concept of search and the concept of trial and error or variation and selection, they appear to be equivalent. Now, again, I have kind of a couple counterexamples. I'm not going to get into them right now. We're going to treat them as equivalent for the moment. When you realize that's the case, then you realize that what really is special about biological evolution and human knowledge creation is the fact that we can, we can jump across the search space in startling ways that no algorithm currently can. That's called the problem, problem of open-endedness. Okay, we, and even our, like, our best genetic algorithms do not solve that problem today. They're still so narrow. Okay. And in fact, we don't even know, I, I just explained it to you. So it seems like I understand what I'm saying and it maybe even makes sense to you, but I don't understand it well enough to put it into an algorithm. And at the end of the day, we understand things through in precisely through algorithms. We understand everything through algorithms, which is one of the reasons why I don't expect we will someday have laws of physics that we don't define via math. And we, instead we define them like functional descriptions or descriptions of like we would try to handle ethics today or something like that. I don't anticipate we will ever see laws of physics that are like that. Hmm. Okay. If we did, it would be the same as saying we didn't really understand them. Yeah. Okay. And it would violate the idea that we can actually understand everything. Yeah. So, and by the way, if you go look at a paper on ethics, I don't really believe we have any ethic theory, ethical theories today that we actually understand like any of them. Hmm. So we understand them at a kind of glossy high level, maybe, but in terms of actually being able to understand them in any deep sense, we don't. Would right? you say that that's a fair way to at least briefly summarize the, the importance of Alan Turing's universality is that just, you could just say the world is comprehensible. I mean, that's there's a def, there's a deep it. link between those two. Okay. Okay. There's a deep link between the fact that um, we can comprehend a thing and that we can turn things into algorithms. Yeah. And then when we can't turn a thing into an algorithm, we don't fully comprehend it. Mm. However, they can't be exactly equivalent either, because okay. it's possible to understand how to put something into an algorithm without understanding it. Hmm. So there must be more to it than that, right? There, yeah. There's it's a, a necessary but insu you know but insufficient thing to understand, right? Okay. Okay. Um, I could like easily teach you an algorithm to accomplish something and you may have, you may be able to follow the steps without having any understanding of why it works. Right. I see. So it can't be that comprehension and algorithms are exactly the same thing. And yet you can't actually show me counterexamples to what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where yeah. if we, if we have a field that we can turn it into an algorithm, we have a deep understanding of that field. Whereas if we have a field that we can't turn into an algorithm, then we don't have a deep understanding of that field, right? It's, it's, and, and this, and this shocks people a little though, right? We don't have a deep understanding of Darwinian evolution because we can't turn it into an algorithm today. We have a number of understandings of it. The parts we do understand, we can turn into algorithms and we can write algorithms that do something like it, right? But in a more narrow sort of way, the genetic algorithms I previously mentioned. But what we're really talking about here is a gap in our knowledge. And we're um, Leslie Valiant famously has championed the idea of researching artificial evolution, 
where we try to come up with what's the algorithm that actually allows for open-ended evolution to take place. There's other researchers that are like studying the problem of open-endedness, trying to make progress on that. We will someday understand it and it will turn out to be something fairly simple, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And it, we just haven't figured out how to understand the problem deeply enough to be able to come up with the right sorts of solutions to where we really kind of grasp this is the problem. And this is one of the things where I do agree with Deutsch, where the fact that we put machine learning in terms of induction, I don't think that's entirely wrong. I think that induction had a degree of verisimilitude to it. And therefore, you can make quite a bit of progress in the field of machine learning by thinking of it as a form of induction. But I think if you were to, my guess is, is that if you were to rethink machine learning in terms of Popper's epistemology, that you would understand it at a deeper level and that it would eventually lead to a deeper research program. Hmm. Um, now, you know, I don't know that for sure, right? But that'd be my guess because I, I know that induction is an inferior form of epistemology. It's not entirely wrong, um, but it it is a reduced understanding of how, say, science works or how, say, humans understand things. And critical rationalism is a much better way to look at it. What critical rationalism does not address is how we come up with our conjectures. Like, it does not tell us anything today about how we come up with our conjectures. My guess is that once you know how we come up with our conjectures, you've solved the problem of AGI. And that's when you have your universal conjecture engine. Yes. Okay. And then we'll understand. So we can ask questions. What's an, what's an explanation? Don't have a good, we don't have a good definition of an, a good algorithmic understanding of what an explanation is. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, we have a whole theory of, of, um, and, and this is another example of where Deutsch is wrong that it's taken for granted. There's a whole branch of machine learning called explanation based learning where they've taken the idea of explanation seriously and have tried to model the concept of an explanation and then have built machine learning algorithms based on explanations. And they have a lot of the qualities that Popper said should exist. So for example, when you do um, explanation-based learning, a single example, a single rule can have, instead of being just a heuristic, which is how they do most things like with neural nets, which is just probabilistic heuristics, you can actually have a single explanation that then has this reach and it goes out and it, it, it is true in all cases where they, that's not true for most machine learning algorithms. And it, it's, it actually has a lot of the qualities that we would expect of scientific explanations. And yet the end result does not solve the problem of AGI. And in fact, it's not even as good a form of machine learning today as regular neural nets that just use inductive probabilistic approaches. Why is that, right? That's a totally fair question. Why is it that one of the things that we know is missing um, in AGI research explanations, why did that field sputter out and not make progress? What was missing in it? We don't know, right? Um, but that is an example of how AGI research has tried all sorts of different things. And guess what? The inductive ones, the ones we call inductive, those were the most productive so far, right? That's why, that's why they get all the love and attention. It's got nothing to do with a love of the philosophy of induction. <laughs> it's, it's just got to do with the fact that that's where we happen to make all the, all the progress with, was specifically with neural nets. And so that's, what's getting studied the most. They're looking in the light, exactly like you would expect. And it's not wrong for them to do that because these are all really useful algorithms that they're coming up with. 
Um, and yet I completely agree with Deutsch that it's the wrong direction. It's, this is not how you're, you're not going to discover AGI in the realm of probabilistic inductive um, ideas. It's just not the way the human brain does do that, but the human brain clearly does more than that. And mm. our universal explainership is not rooted in it. Right. It's, it's clearly something more that we're doing. Um, and I think this is, maybe this would be a good place to stop this discussion. What I'm really trying to get at is on the one hand, I think computational universality is, is, is just, I can't even conceive how you would get around it. Okay. One of our mutual friends who has been critical of it. One of the things she says, she admits, she says, I don't know what these future theories will look like. Well, of course you don't. You would have to imagine some sort of physics that doesn't follow math. You would have to imagine, I mean, like it's, it's, you can, you can't even conceive what the paper is going to look like, right? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, humans actually understand things through math, right? We try yeah. to model things out with math when we're trying to get really precise. Yeah. And um, to try to imagine what a set of laws of physics that would fit the criteria that she's looking for, you can't even conceive what it's going to look like because it goes so far against the way humans actually think, right? Hmm. Um, and what we expect of our scientific theories. And so the proof's in the pudding, right? It, people who have these criticisms, they need to come up with those laws. They need to show them to me. Until then, I'm going to still assume universality holds. Uh, and I'll change my mind fast if they can actually do it. I just don't think they can, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I don't think that the world, the field of AI is primarily stuck because of they're rooted in inductive thought. For one thing, I don't think that there's any sort of inductive thought that isn't ultimately really deeply related to um, Karl Popper's uh, theories. I think Karl Popper's theories, I used to believe that they subsumed induction. I'm not sure I believe that anymore. I think that there's a statistical effect that's got nothing to do with Karl Popper's theories. That's part of what we call induction today. But hmm. um, but you, you do not, I'm reading Deborah Mayo's book which is an attempt to merge statistical theory with Popper's theories and to come up with something that's better than either of them. And she's doing it. Like she's actually got an advance on critical rationalism that, that um, makes progress. And I'm kind of more in the male camp these days because of that. Um, I think that she's actually coming up with a, a generalized version of critical rationalism that will be still critical rationalism um, that's better than what Popper had because she's actually uh, studied this more deeply than Popper was able to. He, he didn't understand statistical theory. It wasn't his strong suit. So she's, she's making some progress. She's also doing a few things that I think are probably wrong. It, the book I'm reading is, um, I think it's called Statistical Inference as Severe Testing. So she's okay. arguing that the concept of statistical inference is really boils down to, did you severely test the process? And until you did, your inference is not valid. And it's a really, it's, it's a really interesting way of looking at, and so I, I had this, I didn't know how to merge um, Popper's theory with um, this inductive way that we think of machine learning today. And she's really, and that was where I like, I approached Vaden trying to ask him and I, his answer was really not, I think on the right track, but uh, Mayo's is. I think Mayo has hit the nail on the head on how we would actually go about doing this. 
So I'm still reading the book. So I, I need to finish the book still. And honestly, she's a hard read. <laughs> um, so I, I wonder how much I'm understanding. I feel like I'm getting a lot out of the book, but I feel like she's making points that I sometimes just don't understand. And I'm unclear what her point is. She's very poetic in the way she writes. So sometimes she just doesn't make her conclusions as clear as she should have. Um, but I think, think she's on the right track. I'm really convinced she's on the right track. And I think that that is where I can con- completely agree with Deutsch, is that um, if we could take a look at how would we reimagine AI from the standpoint of critical rationalism, and how would we reimagine machine learning from the standpoint of critical rationalism, my guess is that would open up really interesting new ideas. Now, would those lead to AGI? Probably not on their own, but it's probably one of the components we need. I think there's more though. Like I said, I think we need a better understanding of explanations. What's an explanation? We need a a model, a proper model of what an explanation is, computational model of what an explanation is. And I don't know that we have that today. I think we don't have that today. Okay. I think explanation-based learning doesn't have a good model of what an explanation is. I don't think it's a good enough model. I, I they're not entirely off base. They've got some interesting ideas. They basically model it as logic, which is which is what Popper did, by the way. He tried to model the idea of an explanation as logic. That's like the whole basis for his original form of critical rationalism as using deductive logic. Yeah. So they're actually kind of on the right path, right? And this is one of the, and this is one of the things where again I have to disagree a little with Deutsch. If you look at the scientific community, they may talk about science being induction. Machine learning may talk about machine learning being induction. Okay. They're not doing induction because there's there's really no such thing as doing induction, right? What they're really doing is critical rationalism, even if they don't know it. And in fact, critical rationalism predates Popper by centuries. This is one of the things that I think people miss. And I've started to realize that the critical rationalist camp has a problem. I call it the, their war on their war on words. Okay, when I read David Miller, um, he wrote a book, Defense of Critical Rationalism. He spends so much time attacking various philosophical ideas that aren't really wrong if you understand them the way your average scientist would understand them. So, for example, he spends considerable time attacking um, the idea that there are no good reasons. If what you mean by there are no good reasons is that there are no sure or justified reasons, which is which is really what Miller means, right? Then sure, he's correct. But if I were to go to the average person, average scientist, average AI worker, you know, researcher, and I would just say, are there good reasons? for believing in one thing over another. They're going to say yes. And you know what? They're right. Hmm. Okay. In fact, critical rationalism could be thought of as a description of what good reasons are. Hmm. And so when Miller says there are no good reasons, he's right, but only because he's defining good reasons in a super narrow way at odds with how most people think of the term. And once you realize that critical rationalists are doing that on a regular basis, I could give you several other examples of the critical rationalist war on words where they are just wrong. The idea that there's no such thing as a justification. Of course, there's such thing as a justification, right? Critical rationalism could be thought of as the justification for why some theories are better than others. Okay. Um, 
the fact that they're so bent out of shape over certain words, and these words actually have multiple possible meanings, and they're bent over bent out of shape over a certain philosophical understanding of those words, when most people don't use those words in that way. Okay, that's when you have to start to realize there's nothing wrong with saying science is inductive. Uh, Popper had no problem. I could give you the quote of saying my theory, critical rationalism, could be thought of as induction. Right, induction's real. It actually works, but it works through using critical rationalism. And this is the idea of uh, critical rationalism. Critical rationalism subsumes induction. Induction's not a completely worthless theory. It never was. It was partially on the right track. Hmm. And we wouldn't have critical rationalism today, but for the fact that induction as a theory existed first, and that it it had problems. And that Karl Popper needed to solve those problems. And then he figured out why and what we're calling induction works. And it turns out it's because it's through conjecture and refutation. Okay. Most people today, most critical rationalists today would never want to admit like Popper did that there's any connection between induction and critical rationalism, but the two are deeply connected together. What it is, is that one's better than the other. Induction's Newton's theory. Critical rationalism is Einstein's theory. Okay, it's a better theory. It's a theory that explains more, mm. gets us further, mm. solves more problems, and it, but explains the success of induction. And once you really understand or explain some of the success of induction, um, pre-Mayo, it may be it didn't fully explain the success of induction. And I think that's why a lot of people accuse Popper of no matter what he did, there was always this whiff of induction. It's probably true, right? Yeah. That Popper did not solve all the problems surrounding how to merge his theory with inductive theory. I should probably also note inductive theory is so vague that it's sometimes really unclear what people even mean by it. So for example, this one comes from Miller, and I think Popper said this one too. If all you mean by induction is that there is an element somewhere of the future and the past being the same, well, of course, science is based on finding universal theories. Universal theories, by definition, are the same in the past and in the future. So, of course, if that's all you mean by induction, then yes, science is inductive, (laughs) right? It's a vacuous way of saying induction is true, right? It's, okay, there's something more going on than that, right? It's the fact that we use statistics to test things. This is coming from Mayo now. I didn't know this, but like Einstein, until I read Mayo, Einstein, when we did the Eddington expedition and they tried to measure if Einstein's theory was correct or Newton's theory was correct with the eclipse and where the stars were located. They used statistics, statistical inference to figure it out because the instruments were so imprecise that they could, they had to just do a bunch of measurements and then they had to take a probability over it. Okay. That's an example of how statistical uh, inference leaks into even the parts of science that we don't think of as being statistical and how, and that assumes certain things that we would consider inductive. It assumes that we're pulling from an identically distributed set of uh, probabilities, for example. I, I'm saying all sorts of things that I need to explain way better, and I, I would have to have a totally separate podcast to put my thoughts together in a more uh, consistent way to make make sense of it. Well, it sounds it's, interesting. Um, Mayo, Mayo, is that spelled like Mao? M-A-Y-O. Maybe oh, I would have said Y-O. Yeah. Okay, okay. There's a lot of interesting questions here that haven't been entirely resolved. Popper took us so far, but he didn't take us all the way. And honestly, he was off track in a couple of places. Uh, 
I, I've criticized Popper, at least I've criticized Popper as his theory isn't really about conjecture and refutation because the word refutation, it's only about refutation if you define refutation in a certain narrow way. <laughs> you have to define it as re refuting the theory plus the background knowledge, right? But nobody takes it that way. And tons of misunderstandings of Popper come from the fact that he insisted on using the word refutation, and it probably wasn't the best term. He probably should have used the term counterexample, for example. Hmm. Um, and you can get a much clearer understanding of Popper by thinking through counterexamples rather than refutations, because a counterexample doesn't carry with it the philosophical baggage of this observation has to actually refute the theory. It just needs to show a problem with the way we're currently thinking of the theory. Um, and that's a much more accurate way of thinking of Popper's epistemology. Hmm. Okay. Um, that, that's my Popper without refutation that we did a podcast episode on. I don't know if you've gotten to those yet or not when you've gone through the backlog. I have. I need to, I need to listen again though. And you know what? These are all such small tweaks, right? And, but that's what we do. It's, we're not going to find that Mayo disproves Popper's epistemology in the sense of it completely overturns it and we go some other direction. She's going to overturn it by showing why it was successful, which really just means she shows it was mostly right. Right. And that's what Einstein did with Newton's theory. That's what, if there is a future computational theory, it's going to show why the current computational theory was right in every case we knew about. Right. I mean, it's it's got to explain the success of the theories. And this is why I don't worry so much about needing to find future physics to figure out what AGI is. It is going to turn out to be a software problem if the current theories are true. And we've got every reason to believe that that they're true. Right. They're, they're false, ultimately, but they're true for everything that we're currently discussing. Right. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah. Um. So. And this is why I love this article by Deutsch. And yes, I think ultimately it misled a little. I feel bad that a lot of the people who are trying to research AGI now, just laymen trying to research AGI using Popper's theories, I feel like Deutsch has misled them on several points. And we need to pull people back and, and realize AI is actually doing useful stuff. Stop thinking of it as a completely ridiculous field. You know, it, it's interesting in its own right. It even has a link to AGI, right? At a minimum, AI is a series of very serious attempts. The original AI, at least, was a series of very serious attempts to understand what the human brain was doing that failed. And Popper would tell you that the way you create knowledge is by understanding the problem. And the way you understand the problem is by trying to solve it and failing. In this sense, AI has made progress towards AGI. And we will, once we understand AGI, look back someday and we will see why, how AI did lead to AGI by showing approaches that didn't work. Hmm. And there will be that link and we will see it, right? The most obvious example here, is the early the earliest form of AI was sim, was symbolic logic? Well, symbolic logic was way back to the time of Aristotle an attempt to formalize how humans thought. That was wrong, although right in some cases, in many cases. So, on the one hand, it failed. Right? They tried. They thought that in a matter of months they were going to be building AGIs because they were just going to put into the computer, you know, these these inference machines that use deductive logic. And it seems so naive to us today, right? 
But why did it fail? Nobody's really asking that question, right? <laughs> this is where there's there's so much room for AGI research if you start to rethink of this in terms of Popper's epistemology. Popper's epistemology is rooted in deductive logic. So they weren't entirely on the wrong path, right? They, they, they at least were partially correct to go down that path. And it's probably unfortunate that that path got abandoned because it was at least partially going down the right direction. And yet something was missing. Something was missing from the way of doing it. One of the most obvious things missing from it was the fact that it's so hard to represent things in deductive logic. I, I've written a deductive logic um, program to try to explore this further in my own AI, AGI, layman research, right? So I, I wrote up a DPLL um, algorithm that uh, does, um, that works out implications of, of deductive logic statement, propositional logic statements. And it's not tractable, right? I mean, what humans are doing is clearly, humans don't really reason in straightforward deductive logic like this algorithm does. We can, it's within our capacity to do so, but it isn't the way we normally go about things. So I think we would have to rethink this, right? We'd have to say, okay, what are humans really doing? What are humans really doing if it's not deductive logic? <laughs> and, and this led to the entire field of AI where they try to, um, entire field of logics, where they try to work out non-monotonic logic. They're trying to find logics that are closer to what humans actually do, okay? And again, all of them have failed, right? I mean, they're interesting fields in their own, own right. I don't mean to fail entirely as fields, but they're not actually what humans are doing. Right. Humans are doing something more than this. And but I think those are the right approaches. You try your best to solve the problem with the part, you know, and then you try to figure out what went wrong. And in this sense, AI is the study of AGI, even if it doesn't mean to be. Um, and this is why I went back and studied AI. This is why I said, even though I know AI is not the same as AGI, I can see that this is a serious attempt at AGI that failed. And I know from critical rationalism, that's how you learn the problem. That's how you understand the problem well enough to finally formulate a solution is that you have to fail to succeed at solving it. And AI is absolutely legitimate failed attempts to solve the problem of AGI. And well, all very fascinating, Bruce. I, di I didn't get to, to uh, uh, throw in my my favorite uh, quote from Deutsch about uh, um, AGI. I'd be curious what you think of it briefly. Okay. Um, he said, I know, I'm almost sure this is from Deutsch, but I can't quite find the source. But he says, we'll know when uh, from this is just from memory. But I, he said, I uh, will know that uh, computers have achieved AGI, not when they can beat us um, at chess, when they decide not to play chess and get caught up on the first 30 seasons of The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was okay, a, yeah, I think he's probably that right. Is, that is a great quote right there. <laughs> I think he's probably right. I think we've got good reason to believe that he's right. However, let me let me walk through why he says that and where he th I think he might get it a little bit wrong. Okay. And why he's still probably right anyhow. Okay. <laughs> um so we we kind of know Deutsch has this idea that a universal explainer can't be programmed. He says this in the article that we're discussing. Okay, he says, even the concept of programming 
is wrong. He says, the okay, so he says, in any case, AGI cannot possibly be defined purely behaviorally. In the classic brain in the vat thought experiment, the brain, when temporarily disconnected from its inputs and output channels, is thinking, feeling, creating explanations. It has all of the cognitive attributes of an AGI. So the relevant attributes of an AI program do not consist of the relationships between inputs and outputs. Okay. I don't know, have a clue what he just said there. I mean, I, I, I don't think it was a meaningful statement, to be perfectly honest. It may sound meaningful, but I don't think it was. Um, I could write an algorithm today that doesn't take an input, but does lots of interesting things anyhow, right? And then I can write one that never creates an, uh, an output, right? If I go and I play um, Skyrim, nobody doubts that's an algorithm. There's no ultimate output that needs to come out of playing Skyrim, okay? That's just not how the game works. So this seems to be an, a misunderstanding of the concept of an algorithm um, that Deutsch has propagated, unfortunately. And I've seen other fans of David Deutsch propagated also. The idea, the idea of an algorithm is we take a program, we take a computation, and we turn it into an input and an output for the sake of studying it. When I do that, I take something like a, a program like Skyrim, and I can turn, I can rethink of it as an algorithm, or rather a collection of algorithms. So I've got an algorithm that updates the world, and I've got an algorithm that updates the AIs in the world. I've got an algorithm that looks at where the player is and then outputs what that looks like on the screen for a single frame of, of the video game. Okay. We can describe the entire game in terms of algorithms. And yet, technically speaking, the entire game together isn't an algorithm because it has no inputs and outputs that ultimately it's trying to work towards some goal. The concept of an algorithm is really one that we use for the study of computation and getting so caught up in what is or isn't an algorithm doesn't make sense because everything can be turned into an algorithm just by the way we think of it. Um, and this is this is one of the things that I think a lot of people miss is that it, it's a matter of how we study it. It's not that algorithms are some deep platonic concept, right? It's it's a convenient way of looking at computation. And everything is an algorithm. So I promise you an AGI will have a series of inputs and outputs exactly like Deutsch is saying it won't. <laughs> so I don't think this was a meaningful statement. And I think this is one of the places where he he's kind of gone off the rails in terms of what we can actually learn from critical rationalism mixed with computational um, theory. Hmm. But I can kind of see what he's trying to get. He's trying to get at. Okay. I can kind of see what he's trying to get at here. Because so, he goes on to say, the upshot is that unlike any functionality that has ever been programmed to date, this one can be achieved neither by specification nor by a test of outputs. The need that what is needed is nothing less than a breakthrough in philosophy, a new epistemological theory that explains how brains create explanatory knowledge and hence defines in principle without ever running them as programs, which algorithms possess the functionality and which do not. Okay. Again, I feel like this is a totally misleading statement because everything's a program. So the idea that it, not going to run them as programs. Plus, even just the statement, um, unlike any functionality that has ever been programmed to date, it cannot be achieved by specification nor by test of the outputs. That's not how we program things. 
<laughs> it's got nothing to do with it, right? It's I don't even know where this is coming from. Okay, when we come up with a program, if I were to go program um, anything for my job working as a programmer, I don't specify what the inputs and the outputs are supposed to be. That's just not how it's done, right? It's so I. I I don't know where he, this is coming from. And yet I can see what he's trying to get at. Okay. He's trying to say, we program an algorithm to do one precise thing. And that's not what human beings are. Human beings have all sorts of ideas and we're jumping all over the place. And that's what your quote is yeah. from Deutsch, right? Yeah. Okay. My guess is that's the nature of universal explainership. If we had an algorithm today, a program today that was a universal explainer program, it would be able, it would not be, it, it might decide to go watch the Simpsons instead of playing chess like we wanted it to. Yeah. And the very fact that it is a universal explainer means it can gather knowledge through conjecture and refutation in areas it wasn't the narrow, it's not just within the narrow areas that it was programmed to. Okay. Yeah. That is going to be part of the nature of an AGI because an AGI solves the problem of open-endedness, but it's got nothing to do with inputs. It's got nothing to do with outputs. It's got nothing to do with being or not being a program or being or not being an algorithm. None of that has anything to do with it. That's all misleading. Okay. Because it will be an algorithm. It will we'll be able to think of it as an algorithm. Anyhow, it will be a program. It's going to be all those things. And really Deutsch wouldn't argue with me over any of those. This is, he'd probably say, oh, this is linguistic differences, right? I'm trying to make a point. I was doing it with the language I could. Here's the thing though. Deutsch has taken that to a radical level. He has said, therefore you can't actually program an AGI in any way. Well, we know that's not quite right because our genes coerce us, right? They, they have a program for us that we can't ignore. But they use coercion to pleasure, pain, things like that, to try to get us to align our interests with theirs. And for the most part, it works, right? You, 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 you can look at Gandhi as the counterexample, but there sure aren't a lot of counterexamples when it comes to hunger making you want to go eat, yeah. right? The reason why Gandhi can ignore it with the right knowledge and with the right practice is because he's a universal explainer. That much is true. Deutsch get that part right. Okay. But the reason why the vast majority of us aren't Gandhi is because you can program an universal explainer to be coerced by its actions and by what thoughts it has and things like that. I think Deutsch makes a fair point. We maybe shouldn't do that. We don't really know. Like we don't understand this concept well enough. Most of us don't have a lot of problem with the fact that um, we find sex pleasurable. Like that's actually a case where we're being in a certain sense coerced by, our, coerced by our by our genes through pleasure and we like it. So we don't mind it. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's unclear what type of AGI safety programs will ultimately be necessary or if any will be necessary. We're too far out on that. And I think Deutsch is making assumptions here that aren't we don't have enough knowledge to really know if if he's right or not. But he's kind of right. He's right that even when you have a really strong AGI safety program that the genes have on us to make us want to eat, that you still end up with Gandhis that can ignore it, hmm. <laughs> right? And so in that sense, he's right. Yeah. Morally speaking, should we, right? Like if, if I could write a, an AGI that only played chess, 
by making it just like so pleasurable, that's all it wants to do. Should I? Like, there's still an ethical question there. That seems a little bad to me, right? I, and it may not even be possible. I, I don't, I don't want to sideline us because we should really be wrapping things up. But there's an interesting Werner Vinge uh, storyline that asks that question. Yeah. Which, which story? It's in uh, Deepness of the Sky. They, uh, oh, interesting. They have, uh, a particular group of people figures out how to essentially infect people with autism. So they find the, like their very best minds and then they make them um, super obsessed over, 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 over solving just that one particular problem. And it's how they handle the fact they can't make machines do the automation that they need. They, they make all their people into machines. So, and that, that's a good way to put ask the question because are you okay with turning people, infecting people with autism, even if it benefits society because they solve problems better? You know, and they become obsessed with solving certain types of societal problems. It doesn't sound very pleasant to me, right? I mean, so there's this, there's there's the ethical question. There's there's can it be done? Well, to some degree, it can. We we know the genes was able to do it through feelings. Okay, let me just read one more thing from the Deutsch article. He says, at one end of the scale, there's the philosophical problem of the nature of subjective sensations, qualia, which is intimately connected to the problem of AGI. He doesn't know that, right? I mean, like he he literally does not know that. Our best theories on this subject, which admittedly aren't great theories, so he could turn out to be right, is that animals have qualia, that they experience things, and that they're not general intelligences. So our best scientific theories at the moment is that those two are not connected and that qualia um, actually evolved at an earlier state and that uh, universal explanership came later and that the two have no connection at all. Now, is that true? I don't know. I mean, like our theories of qualia are so bad at this point and our, even our theory of animal qualia are so bad at this point that you've got to be ready for an overturning, you know, that it may turn out that he turns out to be right. But let me be very clear that and we haven't done an episode on this, and we probably should, that there's a ton of science on this that, that Deutsch doesn't know about. And things that made predictions that got corroborated and really interesting experiments that have been done that Deutsch has no knowledge of, that he just has not studied. And you can't just ignore it all, right? I mean, you're going to have to explain the success of those theories once you have your final theory. And at this point, when he says that they're intimately connected, that's just a wild guess on his part, right? Even if even if he turns out to be right, it wasn't rooted in anything but a wild guess. Um, it certainly was not based on any theory of universality. Um, and so, you know, we don't know. I mean, like, there's a lot of questions here that we're still trying to answer. And getting back to Cameo's point... Um, that may be the only way that we can try to program AGIs. Maybe you can only do it through qualia. Maybe you can only do it through pleasure and pain. And should we then becomes a separate ethical question. And maybe in some cases, yes. Maybe in some cases, no. We just don't know at this point. We're, we're, we're in an area where our knowledge is so small that any guess you make is going to be very unknowledgeable. And it's just going to be a wild guess at this point. Anyhow, that was where I was trying to go with this. At once, this article really inspired me to go back to school, to study AI, 
um, to, to really believe that the problem of AGI is a tractable problem that really could happen in our lifetimes, right? If we get the right thinking and we understand the problem well enough, it will turn out to probably be a very simple problem to solve. Um, and it probably will require exactly like uh, Deutsch is saying, philosophical breakthroughs. And the starting point should be critical rationalism, exactly like Deutsch is saying, although critical rationalism is insufficient. It's it's not enough. It's going to be an improved version of critical rationalism that we're ultimately going to need. Hmm. One that understands better what a conjecture is, for example, what an explanation is. Understands the problem of how to merge induction and uh, explanation better. Statistics and explanation, I should probably say. I feel like the, this article has got way more right than wrong. And in terms of its basic premises, it's totally smack on. But I also think it's got a few misleading points that as I've studied this more deeply, there, there's just more to it than that. It, the, the world of scientists are great critical rationalists. They are the best critical rationalists. They are way better than critical rationalists at critical rationalism. They are enormously better at critical rationalism than critical rationalists hmm. as of today. And so it shouldn't be that surprising that science is doing a lot of things right, even in the area of trying to study AI. Love it. Thank you, Bruce. That was wonderful. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.